Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Again, when I was about eight or nine, um, Sunday evenings, a man named Mr. Anthony used to uh, have a radio broadcast. And in 30 minutes minus commercials, he would solve a couple's problems or a person, one or two person's problems. And I knew how troubled my family was. And uh, I wished that Mr. Anthony could come talk to our family. And out of that came uh, kind of the seed of a uh, desire to become a uh, healer of people. And that's where it got started. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6. I'm Michael John Cusick. In the 19th chapter of the book of Leviticus, God speaks through Moses saying, Stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God. Another translation reads, You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor them. On this episode and the next, I'm honoring the gray-headed man who has taught me more than anyone about the heart of God and the restoration of the soul. Dr. David Donaldson is a clinical psychologist who has practiced psychotherapy for more than 60 years. At the age of 85, he continues to see clients at his practice in Golden, Colorado. Born in 1932 and raised on a farm in Missouri, David went on to earn a Master of Divinity from Denver Seminary and a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from Fuller. As you listen to parts one and two of my conversation with David, I invite you to ponder what it means to age with grace and dignity, to continue to grow and develop into and through the last stages of life, and what life with God could possibly look like. So join me now in rising in the presence of this 85-year-old saint and sage. David Donaldson, thanks for taking time to talk with me today. You're welcome. I'm happy to do this. Happy birthday to you and congratulations. What's it like to be 85 years old? I'm really surprised that I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've had significant health challenges since I was about 80, (laughs) about 25. And uh, my peers and contemporaries with far better health have had careers and uh, have died off before me. So 
at 85 and probably in the remaining quarter of the population that was born in 1932, which was my birth year. So I'm surprised I'm still here. <laughs> well, I'm glad you are still here. Let's go back to the other end of the spectrum from 85. What's your earliest memory? My earliest memory of um, still being in diapers, I was in the kitchen. I peed, overflowed my diapers, uh, poured down onto the linoleum floor, and it ran towards the kitchen stove. And uh, I remember one time telling my mother, uh, I can remember things before I was two, and she said, nobody can remember anything before they're two. And I told her that story, and she lifted one eyebrow like she does when she's surprised, and she said, yeah, the kitchen floor sloped towards the stove. <laughs> wow. So that's my first memory. <laughs> and when was the first time that you became aware of God? Well, I was born in Missouri on a farm. In the spring, uh, I was probably four. I'd get up in the morning, and uh, it was still cold. I figured out that if I ran real hard, I could warm the world up. And so I would get up in the morning, and I'd run real hard, and I'd warm the world up. And uh, so this particular morning, I ran up the uh, dirt driveway to the uh, road where the mailbox was. The mailbox was bolted to a pipe that stuck out to the edge of the road, and so it made a kind of a um, gap uh, or a frame between the ground and the top of the pipe that was probably about three feet high. To my surprise, uh, one of these huge black and yellow spiders had made a spider web in that gap, and um, <clears throat> the dew had formed thousands of little droplets on it. And um, the sun came up over the horizon and it turned each of these little droplets to a prism. It was like hundreds of diamonds on this spiderweb kind of uh, necklace. And I remember just looking at that and being stunned and astonished and awed and I didn't say anything like, this is God. I just had the awareness that somebody did this, and um, they loved beauty. So that was my first awareness of God. And then, as the years passed and as you graduated, you went on to earn a Master of Divinity and become an ordained pastor and then attend a seminary to get your doctorate. But what are some of the events and the people that shaped your life growing up? I need to go back to uh, my early experience because those were very formative for me. When I talk to people today as a, uh, a psychotherapist, I find that it's often the case that uh, people have a primal wound. Something happened early uh, in their life that wounded them deeply and it changed the direction of their lives. And that wound becomes a kind of teacher to them. It um, becomes a kind of a challenge for them. And uh, healing that wound is the way in which God challenges them to uh, grow and mature and resolve uh, those uh, issues of their life. And they deepen and become wiser from that. 
I had two primal wounds. One was when I was um, about nine. We were on a dairy farm. We moved from Missouri to Southern Oregon. I didn't think grown-ups had much fun, so I didn't want to grow up. And so uh, when I was about nine, my father gave me my first assignment that I knew signal that I was going to become one of the farmhands, and it was to feed the calves. And I didn't want to do that, so I didn't. And uh, after a few reminders, my dad came in the house one time and uh, said, you've not fed the calves. And he took me down to the barn, and uh, he'd cut about a two-foot length of hose, and he beat me with the uh, hose. And I had no idea that anyone would be capable of feeling that kind of pain. It was just agony. And uh, I peed my pants and screamed in pain, and he said, okay, now go feed the cows. And so through my sobs, I fed the cows. But that traumatized me. It shattered my confidence that my father was safe, that the world was safe, uh, that I was safe. And those um, kind of necessary assumptions that you have to be able to approach the world with as a child were all shattered in that moment. And at the time, nobody had described post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's one of the things that uh, happened from that beating. My dad was not intentionally a vicious man. He was doing what he thought he needed to do in order to raise me to be a good, obedient son. The other primal wound was um, after about age seven or eight, nobody touched me anymore in the family. I was a sensitive kid and uh, I needed touch. I needed to be held and loved and cared about, but there was none of that. So um, one time, one of my relatives, I will protect their identity, we were down by the barn. Uh, this person proposed to me that we go back in the back pasture and uh, try to have sex. And so we went back there. <clears throat> that kind of experience prematurely awakened my sexuality and it just lit a fire in me. And I was too undeveloped uh, as a person to know how to deal with that or know how to manage it. And um, our home was very moralistic. My mother would not let us call the herd bull on the dairy farm a bull. She insisted we call it a boy cow, which struck me as absurd at the time. But I heard in that a message of rejection of sexuality and uh, it wasn't talked about. It was a focus of uh, shame and potential alarm. Not only was my sexuality prematurely awakened, um, my need for touch was sexualized, and so that created a tremendous combination of guilt and shame and confusion. I resorted to masturbation, and um, I was terribly ashamed of that. I thought it was just a horrible, awful sin to even have those feelings in the first place. And so um, it turned my adolescence into a time of agony because I was very serious about loving God and I felt even at age seven or eight that I had been called to be a minister 
and here I had this what was branded lust uh, that was totally out of control. In retrospect, I realized that that was the only comfort that I had uh, at that time. And so um, I split. A part of me became like the elder brother, the self-righteous elder brother. Another part of me became secretly the uh, prodigal son. So while I tried to live this exemplary Christian life on the one hand, on the other hand, I felt like I had this secret wickedness and corruption in myself. And uh, I became aware, even in high school, that I needed counseling. I did not really find uh, a good counselor until I was in seminary, and Vernon Grounds, who was the dean of Denver Seminary, became my counselor. And my father had Parkinson's disease, and so he was kind of predisposed to be emotionally unavailable anyway, and that made him even more remote and unavailable. So uh, Vernon Grounds was, to me, the first real father that I ever had. That was the beginning of my healing journey, was uh, my work with him. Was it during that time when you came to see uh, that beneath this feeling so bad about yourself and feeling so unlovable that there was a primal wound? When did you come to name it as that? Not until I was in my 50s or 60s. I was in and out of therapy from age 23 when I started with Vernon Grounds until I was 70 when I first started uh, some of the issues that I had hadn't even been named, like post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, treatment for uh, PTSD had not been really developed, and I had a borderline character disorder, and that was kind of the uh, uh, swear word of uh, psychotherapists. If somebody's borderline, it's a way of saying they're untreatable. Yes. And so much of the early therapy that I did while it was useful and helpful, did not really address those issues because nobody knew how to do it. I think another part of it was that um, for some reason the way I was uh, put together psychologically, it made it impossible for me to heal from uh, these issues. And it's like I had to live long enough to enter the next decade of, of life, a new era or decade of development came along so that I was unable to address things that formerly were just, uh, just seemed like they'd never, never heal. And so uh, that's why my therapy stretched out over such a long period of time. That's a fascinating idea to me that we've talked about, this idea that, first of all, uh, therapy, transformation, inner healing takes so much longer than we think it does. Yeah, uh, most people who come to see me have their clock running and a stopwatch and they just assume a few sessions or at most a few months and they're all better and they're all well. I sometimes compare it to therapy to um, somebody working with a person who stutters. Uh, it's logical to assume that if we treat their stuttering so they no longer stutter, that now they can talk. But researchers who first learned to treat people who stuttered, uh, discovered that after they no longer stuttered, they didn't know how to have a conversation. 
so they had to teach them how to talk. And in a sense, when you help a person heal the wounds of their lives, they then have to be taught how to live life. And that uh, ability to go deeper and to develop as a person is a whole new stage of growth. And some people uh, set their sights too low. Uh, I don't get to decide, <laughs> but I'm always gratified by the ones who really have a vision uh, for what they can be, who they can really become, and uh, they want to stay around and, and uh, go for the whole thing of becoming really realized as a person. So all of what you're implying, and I know this about the nature of your therapeutic work, is that that uh, therapy is an opportunity for so much more than just getting fixed, but it's really an opportunity for becoming. That's right, yeah. My relationship with Christ and, and my walk with God uh, inform that a lot. I think Jesus, uh, the Bible is very clear that um, by beholding the face of Jesus, we become like him. And that opens up, up an opportunity for indefinite growth and healing. And uh, so I have that kind of a vision and a hope for everybody that comes in to talk to me. So let's go back to you became aware of your brokenness in high school and then you forwarded to seminary. How did you get to seminary and how did you become a clinical psychologist? Again, when I was about eight or nine, um, Sunday evenings, a man named Mr. Anthony used to uh, have a radio broadcast. And in 30 minutes minus commercials, he would solve a couple's problems or a person, one or two person's problems. And I knew how troubled my family was. And uh, I wished that Mr. Anthony could come talk to our family. And out of that came uh, kind of the seed of a uh, desire to become a uh, healer of people. Uh, that's where it got started. What year did you end up graduating from Denver Seminary? Uh, that was in 1957. And then you went uh, directly from there to graduate school for psychology, or did you serve as a pastor? I served as a pastor in Golden, and in that church, I didn't know how much healing I needed to do. I didn't know how badly messed up I was. And one of the results of that was I had no social skills and I did not know how to motivate people and love them. And about after about six months, the church was ready to split because they'd formed two camps about those who supported me and those who wanted me gone. I developed diarrhea a uh, high level of anxiety and I resigned from the church to keep the church from splitting over me and nobody could figure out why I was so sick and I finally went to the Mayo Clinic and they said uh, it's probably psychosomatic, go see a shrink and so that's when I started my therapy it did nothing for my health physical health through that I discovered my life work that defeat, a total humiliation at the church, first church I went to, turned out to be laying the groundwork for uh, a whole life of growth and uh, ministry as a 
doctor to the soul of people. And then it was through that that you pursued your career as a clinical psychologist. I went to, um, we moved to um, Pasadena because at that time I was a semi-professional singer and I aspired to be a gospel singer, professional singer, worship uh, leader, they call them nowadays. It became clear after a while that uh, that wasn't going to happen and part of what happened was I lost my voice. I had the wrong voice teacher who thought my four-octave range meant that I was going to be an opera singer, and instead um, he stressed my voice to where I developed vocal nodes, which is the equivalent of uh, calluses on the vocal folds, and so that was the end of my singing career. And it was at that point that I turned to uh, my first dream of becoming a psychologist. And then you attended uh, Fuller's graduate program. And what year did you graduate? Um, I started Fuller School of Psychology hadn't uh, been formed yet. And so I started at um, California State University in Anaheim as a mid-year junior, even though I had seven years of college and graduate school. Uh, college was not accredited, and um, seminary degree was considered a professional degree, and so they gave me no credit, or little credit for it, and so I had to start as a major junior. So I got another bat- master's, and then I got a bachelor's at uh, the university there. Then Fuller opened, and I was one of the first students to enroll there, and uh, I would have been the first to graduate, but uh, my dissertation supervisor was not very competent. He was fired Two new guys were brought on as faculty members, and they looked at my dissertation and they said, this is terrible, start over. And so uh, I had to stay there another year and a half in order to uh, do a dissertation that was up to professional standards. And they were right. It was really pretty junky. It made the difference between me being a kind of an amateurish therapist and really someone who was quite well prepared. You must have been very, very determined to redo the undergraduate work to get that second master's and then push through all of that. That's one of my characteristics is I'm very tenacious. I don't quit. Uh, I had fantasies of burning the whole school down (laughs) after they told me that I had to start over on my dissertation. I guess you can say that at 85. I can. (laughs) Yeah. When I graduated uh, from Fuller School of Psychology, uh, I thought I was well prepared. And I was with the skills of the day. But I would say today, the skills that I've learned through the uh, 60 years that I've been doing therapy, I would say um, 70% of them I did not know when I got my doctorate. I would like to make the really good news for people that we have the skills today to deal particularly with trauma and with old pains uh, that we did not have in the 1960s. So if someone is still aching about some old pain, some old loss, they don't have to endure that anymore. That's treatable. That's 
healable. And that particular part of therapy does not have to be a long, drawn-out deal. We have new, new tools. Things like EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, mm-hmm. and other kinds of brain interventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know a thousand times more about the brain than we did in the 1960s. And you were one of the early adopters of a lot of the trauma models, and a lot of your work had to do with trauma. Yeah, I was the first in Colorado <laughs> to do uh, to use EMDR. And um, when uh, the emotional freedom therapy, which involves tapping on acupuncture points, came along, I learned that, and I uh, learned that well. And there's a new technology that is... Uh, coming along that has not been researched well, but it's fascinating to me. And um, it involves an integration of hypnosis and uh, EMDR and uh, um, looking forward so that you picture what you aspire to, the life you'd like to live, the kind of person you would like to be. And using those techniques to focus on that goal rather than focus so much on all the crap in the past. And uh, that's fascinating to me. That is fascinating. So tell me about, um, as you graduated as a psychologist with all of these life experiences and and having worked through your own wounding to some degree, uh, what you started to do and, and how you got to where you are today living in Golden, Colorado, uh, and having this private practice where you've deeply, deeply influenced my life and hundreds of others. Well, while I was, even while I was in um, graduate school, I was doing therapy uh, at American Baptist City Mission Society. It was a counseling center that was sponsored or subsidized by the Baptists in the area. And so I worked there on staff after I got my master's from the university. I was doing therapy as I was doing my graduate work. They wouldn't let anyone do that anymore, but they did uh, permit me to do it. And uh, after I got my doctorate, I went to Thousand Oaks, which is about 40 miles uh, west of Pasadena, and uh, started my private practice there. That ended in... uh, a disaster because I did a lot of uh, acting out. It was kind of post-PhD craziness. It's not unusual after people get their doctorate to uh, react to all of the stress and demands of uh, PhD work. All of my unresolved stuff came out and uh, I wound up leaving my wife and uh, we decided to close the practice in Thousand Oaks and moved back to Denver. I uh, came back here and uh, took the exam to uh, get my license in Colorado. And I've been practicing here since about 72 or three. So you had this wounding from your life. Uh, You pursue years and years of graduate school. You get the very highest level of training in your field. And then you experience um, failure. What has been the role of failure and how it has been a teacher to you in your life? 
I never blamed anybody else for my failure. I didn't use the nice words I might use now. As I didn't see it as an opportunity for growth uh, consciously, but that's literally what I saw it as a challenge to rise to. I never lost hope that I could become whole and healthy psychologically and spiritually. So I just kept pursuing. I counted in my mind one time the number of psychotherapists that I saw, and I probably went through 20, 25 different psychotherapists. Um, they were the very best available in the L.A. area. But I would say probably uh, one out of ten uh, really knew what they were doing and really knew how to help me. Uh, so some of them I saw for just a few months, but I, I didn't just therapy shop. Some of them I stayed with several years. I just stayed with it. And part of it was I stayed with it until the profession caught up with what they needed to know in order to be be able to help me. But this idea of both the failure and also the wounding has become, in some ways, uh, the, the, the strength and the gift out of which you offer to your clients and your loved ones. That's true. I'm thinking how to uh, talk about that. I heard someone say recently, uh, you shouldn't waste a good crisis. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so when somebody comes in in a crisis or in the course of their work with me, something has happened that they just feel hopeless and devastated about, I don't jump up and down <laughs> visibly of course, and say, whoopee. Um, but inside, I really am. I see that as an opportunity in which the crisis has focused an issue that otherwise might not get, get focused. And out of that focus, we can then address an issue and resolve it and bring healing into it. And out of that comes new wholeness for the person. So I don't see a crisis as a discouraging or dismaying thing at all. I see it as an opportunity. I think it might have been you that told me this the first time, but uh, that the Chinese character represents on the one side the word crisis, and it also means opportunity. That's right. Yeah, I have heard that too. I'm not sure that I said that first, but it's exactly right. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at restoringthesoul.com. Restoring the Soul.